Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. In addition to this podcast, Upstream also produces Indisposable Live, where we host live stream conversations on hot topics and the ongoing work of building a circular economy, and where listeners have a chance to hear their questions answered in real time by leading experts. Check us out online at Upstream Solutions slash live streams for the video versions of these conversations. You can sign up for our newsletter on our website as well, and be sure to follow us on social to find out about upcoming live events. Now, this last month on Indisposable Live, my co-host Matt Prindeville and Upstream's new policy director, Sydney Harris, had the chance to chat with four leaders working on extended producer responsibility around the U.S., Now, EPR, as it's commonly called, has experienced a big resurgence of interest in recent years as a funding source for building reuse infrastructure, especially as more corporate players begin to look at reuse as part of their corporate social responsibility work. There's a lot to unpack about best practices for EPR policy, and this conversation is a great place to start, both as an introduction to those of you new to the topic and as a nuanced food-for-thought dialogue on key strategic considerations for our Policy Wonk listeners. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Matt and Sydney to introduce the topic and our guests, and I hope you enjoy this special episode of Indisposable Life. All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Indisposable Live. I'm Matt Prindeville. I'm the CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream. And we are so excited to dive deep in one of our favorite topics here at Upstream, extended producer responsibility. So back when I joined Upstream in 2011, my very first job was to help pull together a coalition of NGO, government, and business leaders to develop and pass packaging EPR in the United States. And though we helped introduce model legislation in half a dozen states, those early policies ultimately failed to pass. And you know, the general consensus from the majority of policymakers was, well, I've got a blue card or I've got a blue bin. Why do I care about who pays for recycling? And we recognized that we were missing a poster child for why we needed EPR. And so we made a big bet that that poster child was gonna be plastic pollution. And it turns out that that was the right bet. And over the last several years, uh, consumer and citizen outrage over plastic pollution, coupled with the dismantling of the myth that recycling pays for itself, has helped to jumpstart the EPR conversation once again. And today, thanks to the incredibly hard work of government, NGO, and business leaders, four states have now passed laws, and we're tracking around 30 EPR-related bills across 18 states right now. So we've reached the tipping point. But even though EPR has in theory been about creating a circular economy for packaging, in practice, pretty much the only goals that have been applied in legislation are recycling targets. And the effect has been to increase recycling where EPR has been in place, but no actual reduction in the generation of packaging waste. So to give you an example, We've now got more than a decade of data from British Columbia's EPR law, and it's true that diversion from landfill rates went up from around 42% to 60%, but overall waste generation is up 37% over that same period, and per capita waste generation is up 23%. We've essentially been running to stand still, and EPR hasn't put a dent in the things that actually matter. So progress for the planet, it's not just about landfill diversion. It's really about reducing the amount of natural resource extraction, energy use, and pollution required for human needs and desires. And in all these cases, investing in and scaling up reuse can have a much bigger impact, which is why EPR can and should be about creating a circular economy for packaging that prioritizes source reduction and reuse, as well as recycling. So last fall, you may have seen that we released a new vision for Upstream's work. 30% of consumer goods sold in reusables by 2030 or 30 by 30. To achieve this vision, we're leaning into the current policy momentum at the state and even national levels. And we've developed reuse principles to support and guide the conversation. 
Now, these principles represent a slightly different stance than upstream has taken in the past. They say a lot through what they don't say. There's no minimum threshold for reuse cycles or minimum reuse targets or other mandates. They're intentionally flexible because we understand that each state is going to need to experiment and work out their own solutions. There's also no more model EPR or DRS bill on Upstream's website. And that's because we are laser focused on incorporating reuse into these policies rather than weighing in on all the different aspects around EPR, since our partners in the movement already offer that. And I just want to close by saying we are so lucky to have Sydney Harris uh, as our new policy director, who has been a true thought leader in assembling stakeholders on this topic and creating these principles to guide new legislation. So without further ado, I'd like to pass the mic to Sydney. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. And hello, everyone. I am so thrilled to be with you here today for our discussion, and I'm equally thrilled to be joined by our four esteemed panelists. Today, we have Jennifer Navarra, Program Director at Zero Waste Hawaii Island, McKenna Morgan, Policy Advisor at Seattle Public Utilities, Will Grassley, Associate for Policy and Programs at the Product Stewardship Institute, and David Alloway, Senior Policy Analyst at the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. Um, before we dive into our panel discussion with those four, I'm really excited to share with you all Upstream's new policy principles for reuse in EPR and DRS. As you can see on the slide, these are high-level conceptual principles, but we feel that they articulate some of the most important and fundamental ways to thread reuse into these policies at the state or federal level. Also, I just want to quickly acknowledge that we're about to get pretty wonky. We kind of skipped right past the like entry-level concepts of defining EPR, and we are jumping straight into a pretty in-depth topic. But Upstream and also many of our panelists have some really great resources available on that. So if you are newer to the scene, I really recommend checking those out. And I also want to remind folks watching that if you have any questions you'd like to pose to me or any of the panelists, please drop those in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The Upstream team is going to be monitoring those questions. And if there's time, we're going to bring a few um, up with the panelists before we wrap up the program. So without further ado, here are those principles. First, institutionalize reuse through producer funding and financial incentives. This means requiring producers to invest in reuse infrastructure and incorporating financial incentives for producers to transition their own packaging to reusables. No matter what this looks like in a given state, it should create a convenient self-reinforcing system that maximizes consumer participation, ideally with financial incentives to return or refill reusables and beverage containers. Deposits are one example that we know are a successful way to ensure consumers return reusables, but any consumer deposits should also be covered by SNAP or other food assistance programs. Next, mandate and measure reuse. EPR and DRS policies should either set reuse targets in statute or regulations, or they should create a mechanism for targets to be set and reassessed in the future, such as requiring producers to propose reuse targets through a stewardship plan that the state approves. Third, enact DRS and EPR as complementary policies. Ideally, actually, DRS should come before EPR or at the same time because DRS builds out infrastructure for collection, washing, and redistribution of reusable beverage containers that is really crucial for scaling reuse. Fourth, we want to clearly define reusable packaging. Reusable packaging needs to be part of an organized return or refill system that allows companies or consumers to repeatedly reuse it for its original purpose in its original form. And a return or refill system for the purposes of EPR and DRS should not rely on individual consumer choices to achieve reuse, like reusing a tomato jar or something. Next, it's critical to center justice and equity in both process and content. So process-wise, this means developing policies inclusively and also ensuring continued meaningful community engagement, especially of frontline communities throughout program implementation. In terms of policy content, this principle refers to prioritizing the prevention and mitigation of environmental and health impacts from waste management, disposal, and litter in EJ communities and ensuring equitable access to reuse and recycling. 
And last but not least, allow flexibility and avoid barriers to reuse. So this is really all about minimizing barriers to the nascent reuse sector by encouraging competition, correcting outdated or conflicting policies like overly restrictive food codes, and avoiding overly burdensome reporting and administrative requirements on reuse operators, especially startups. So that's really all for me, and I'm going to take this slide down, and I'd like to invite our panelists to join me on screen for a discussion of their own work on reuse in EPR policy. So we're just going to dive right in. I want to start with a question. Um, I'm going to ask, I'm going to direct this to you first, Will, and then probably you, McKenna, just a heads up. So in our new principles, uh, we talk about requiring producers to invest in reuse infrastructure using EPR program funds, which naturally begs the question, should reusables be subject to EPR fees or should they be exempt? And a little bit of an add-on to this question, we often see reusables included in EPR, meaning they would pay fees into the program, but with caveats that they would only pay once when they first enter the market and or that they should pay generally a much lower fee than non-reusable packaging. The idea, obviously, is to incentivize reuse. But will that generate enough funding for reuse in the system or will non-reusables need to subsidize reusable solutions? And are we OK with that? So, Will, I'm going to ask you to go first with that. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be with this group of panelists, um, all very knowledgeable on this topic. So, yeah. So first, I want to back up a little bit um, just to give a little bit of perspective on PSI's perspective. Um, so in late 2022, PSI um, held an EPR mini work group series where we had a small group of key stakeholders discuss how best um, reuse could fit into EPR and how EPR could really um, push um, reuse to the forefront of EPR policies. So through our 2022 stakeholder dialogue, PSI resolved that states could take two primary paths to include reusable packaging in an EPR system. Um, first, in states with robust recycling systems, reusable packaging should be included uh, as a covered material from the start. Uh, and therefore, the program should cover costs relating to improvements in reuse infrastructure and services. And in states without robust recycling systems, the state should consider leaving reusables out of the covered materials and focus on improving their recycling system, um, but should still consider adding reusables in future plan cycles. In either case, the statute should clarify that expanding reuse is a priority and one of the program's ultimate goals. So now to get more onto the question, um, the workgroup's recommendation were to include fees for reusables. However, they should pay only once um, when they first enter the market. And the fee structure should also specify that reusables pay smaller fees than other covered materials to encourage that transition to reusables. Um, the EPR fee structure should always incentivize the transition to more sustainable packaging options, which is pretty in line with upstream's principles of reuse. So some of the reasoning behind this position and why they should be part of the fee structure is if reusables are covered in the program, then there's funding going towards their infrastructure and services and investments to improve that infrastructure. So funding should be in part paid for by the producers who are benefiting from these investments. Um, as well, if reusables are covered in the program, then they're in part responsible for the administrative costs associated with the program and should pay a fee to support the oversight agency's administrative costs. However, even with fees on reusable packaging, um, because reusable packaging and reusable packaging systems are still in their infancy and some producers using reusable packaging may be exempt from the program based on small business exemptions, there will likely need to be some subsidizing from non-reusable packaging producers to construct a viable reuse infrastructure and system in the state. Um, in packaging EPR bills introduced in New York, um, just as an example, specifically Senate Bill 4246, I believe, there's a waste reduction and reuse infrastructure fund um, where each packaging reduction and recycling organization, otherwise known as a producer responsibility organization or stewardship organization and other programs, must deposit at least 5% of total payments received by producers into this fund. Um, this fund would be overseen by the government oversight agency and would be used to pay for investments into reuse um, infrastructure and systems. 
Um, from my conversations with those who've been working on this bill and participating in the stakeholder dialogue um, and negotiations and whatnot, there hasn't been any major pushback on this fund, even though non-reusables will be subsidizing reuse solutions and infrastructure in this, in this proposed program. Um, there seems to be an understanding that non-reusables will need to help subsidize reuse solutions until reuse systems get up and running and become viable solution at large. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you, Will. So just to recap, it sounds like that two-track approach is kind of similar to what we've actually seen with the four APR laws that have passed in that, you know, Maine, Oregon, um, California have very um, established and pretty robust recycling uh, systems relative to some of the other states. And I think at least in Maine and Oregon, reusables are included in the program um, and will be paying some fees. But then maybe in like a Colorado where they didn't have as much established infrastructure, they they went the route of, kind of pretty much excluding reusables for now, but potentially could include them in the future. That's an interesting approach. And I also heard, yes, a little bit of subsidization is probably necessary. McKenna. I'm going to go to you. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sydney. Um, you know, I I do think, um, and the uh, the Wrap Act uh, proposal for an EPR program covering consumer packaging and paper products that's been under consideration here in Washington did include reusable packaging um, within the you know list of covered products and. You know, if you think about where we want reusable packaging to go, it's really important to think about it as a really central part of the packaging future. And some of the arguments that I've heard against making reusable subject to fees are that, you know, they're right now, they're a small part of the packaging universe. They need a leg up to be established, to be, um, you know, given sort of um, favorable treatment. And I think that, you know, no one here would probably argue against, um, you know, support that can be given to um, encourage the growth of reusable packaging. Um, but I think ultimately, if the future of reusable packaging goes where we want it to, um, we need to make sure that it is part of an EPR program. Um, because if it's left out, there's a structural problem with how an EPR program will function in the future um, and how reusables will fit into that future. I do want to offer the caveat that I think that that's particularly true for um, consumer packaging, um, where it's, you know, going out into the consumer universe. And that's really where most EPR policies focus is on that um, consumer packaging. But there are some EPR programs that cover business to business packaging. And I'm not sure that that is as applicable um, in terms of keeping uh, EPR programs covered by, by fees and under um, the standard programs in a B2B packaging context, because often those, um, you know, business to business uh, reusable packaging systems are being delivered in a closed loop, like reverse logistics system that's being managed and paid for directly by the businesses involved. Um, and so I think for, for those types of packaging, it may be appropriate to exclude them from fees. I think there would still be a great benefit to having um, that packaging get reported on, you know, and tracked so that we can understand how prevalent that, um, you know, business to business reusable packaging is. But I think for, for consumer packaging, it's really important that, um, that we have uh, reusable packaging covered because it's part of the packaging universe. And hopefully as we go forward, um, it's just going to grow in terms of being a part of the packaging landscape. And if we're setting up a policy that is designed to cover packaging, um, that should be part of the conversation. Totally makes sense. And David, I think you wanted to chime in as well. Thanks. I'd like to riff on that for just a minute. Great points from both Will and McKenna. Um, so not stated explicitly, but certainly another reason to have reusable packaging pay a fee is that while reusable packaging is reusable, reusable is an adjective that describes the potential for something to happen, but that potential isn't always realized. Ultimately, all reusable packaging will eventually be discarded either because the user chooses not to reuse it 
or because the item eventually breaks or wears out and is discarded. It will eventually hit the solid waste system. It will eventually impose burdens on the recycling or solid waste system, either as irrecyclable or as a contaminant. And that's a very solid justification for having these items pay a fee. The Oregon EPR law applies the fee in theory on the back end. The Oregon law includes uh, consumer facing and B2B packaging. And it says an item is not a covered product if it is never discarded into the solid waste system. Once it is discarded into the solid waste system, it becomes a covered product. <clears throat> so for this, what it means is that the producer of this reusable item can either choose to pay the fee up front, knowing that it will eventually hit the solid waste system, or they could report to the PRO that they're putting, you know, 5,000 units of this reusable packaging into the state and they're losing 20% of their inventory every year. It's leaking out of the system. It's not being brought back. And that's another way of getting at the, the leakage question that McKenna mentioned in business to business packaging. Yeah, really good points all around. Um, thank you all. We started we started right in with like the super in the weed stuff. I want to pull us back a little bit um, for my next question. And let's start with you, Jennifer, because we haven't heard from you yet. Um, you're doing some interesting work in Hawaii with a very different approach to EPR um, that I really want folks to hear more about. So I'm going to pose to you this question. What is the best way, just broadly, to incentivize um reuse or catalyze reuse through through EPR. You know, I think we often encounter a tension that can arise between changing corporate behavior on one hand and supporting kind of local and community-led reuse initiatives on the other hand, which I personally believe we can, you know, do both. <laughs> um, but I'd like to hear from you, especially kind of with this in mind, how how do we navigate that and what is what is the role of EPR in in catalyzing reuse? Should the funding be focused on shifting covered producers packaging to reuse refill, or should it also be a funding source for community scale reuse solutions? Yeah, I I think that we can do both with the funding. I don't think it's a, a one or the other, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And this is coming from the standpoint of being on an island isolated out in the middle of the ocean where we have small populations and really small communities and, so, and small land area too. So I imagine that well, my vision is that we use producer funding to put in place the infrastructure that we need for reuse systems. And I imagine in Hawaii, and this might be the case in other rural areas, that we would we would use this, both local small businesses and producers would use the same infrastructure. And so I, I think we can catalyze community engagement at the same time as incentivizing large producers to transition. And I think there's other ways to get funding as well for the community-based solutions. I, you know, I've been looking at for Hawaii County, the Alameda County's Stop Waste program, and there's Colorado has similar program and their front range waste diversion policy, where they actually are taking fees from landfill tipping fees, and those go into a grant program. And so I think there, there's other maybe near-term, short-term ways to maybe fund some of the community solutions and then also ultimately shift but just to some I think that we need the infrastructure like that's what we need and that's where I really see the producer funding going I think that large producers have the resources and the capacity to feed in to that more so than our small local businesses especially in Hawaii you know our bills that that we are introduced this session really is it's like let's all come to the table and work out the details is really the approach putting the emphasis and priority on reuse and reduction, because that is what makes the most sense for Hawaii. But we don't have recycling infrastructure at all in the state. Many of the islands don't even have collection systems in place. I live in Hawaii County. We don't even have municipal pickup for regular garbage. Um, and so we need, we need a lot of investment. And it, it doesn't make sense to invest into the recycling system in Hawaii because we don't have it. And to ship things to end markets, it's thousands of miles. The cost of the market value of those commodities is way less than what it costs for us to ship. So it makes sense for us to model in Hawaii and start with reuse and reduction because we don't have the infrastructure for recycling in place already. Thanks, Jennifer. And does anyone else want to add on uh, any thoughts to this question? 
David, yes. Sure. Um, not to be too provincial, but I do want to mention kind of the primary mechanism of how the Oregon Recycling Modernization Act addresses the topic of, of advancing reuse and reuse infrastructure. Because our act was written, it was precipitated by a recycling crisis, and the principles of the act were developed by a recycling steering committee that was charged with figuring out how to solve recycling problems. It was not a reuse focus. Nevertheless, we drew our inspiration. We drew some inspiration from the nation of Austria, which had a has a APR system for packaging that requires the PRO to set aside one percent of their budget and dedicate it to reuse. We took that idea and amped it up and said 10%, um, which it sounds like New York has now copied us and doing 5%. So that's cool. Um, but a couple of little wrinkles about the way Oregon is approaching it is unlike Austria, where the, the PRO generates the money and then directs its expenditures. In this case, the PRO uh, generates the money and disperses it to the state and the state disperses the expenditures. When it comes to reuse and waste prevention in particular, our inclination is that uh, there's a public interest to be achieved. That public interest is reduction in environmental impacts. And it is the public sector that is aligned as the keeper of those interests, um, whereas the producers inherently have a different interest, which is if they're going to advance reuse, it's to advance reuse in a way that makes economic sense to them or gives them marketing advantage. And that's not necessarily always aligned with public interest. So the money in this case will be distributed by the state. Um, there will be a fee that will establish the actual uh, amount. The fee is capped at 10% of the PRO's other expenses. We think it could be on the order of 8 to $10 million a year, which we believe is enough to do some real serious market transformation in this state. For example, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, we believe, in school cafeterias. And with $10 million a year for a number of years, we could probably get a lot of school cafeterias in Oregon switched back to reusables, which then comes to this question around, should non-reusable items be paying for this? Um, we are fine with the idea that the producers of disposable dishware um, should pay a fee that is used to help shift the state away from that single-use product. But more importantly, the act in Oregon, it's not a, it's called a waste prevention and reuse fee, but the statute directs us to establish a program to use these funds to quote, reduce the environmental impacts of cover products across their life cycle through any means other than recycling. And so to the extent that, you know, most of these packaging materials and, and et cetera, have very big downstream impacts in the form of litter and they have very big upstream impacts in the form of production, it's entirely justified that all producers, whether their material is recyclable or not recyclable, all producers, whether their material is reusable or not reusable, that all producers would pay into a fund that we would use to reduce those environmental impacts, which have nothing to do with whether they can be recycled or reused. Mm, really good points. Um, so I want to turn to McKenna, Jennifer, and Will, because all of you, David's the only one here with the luxury of sitting on an EPR law. <laughs> all of you are working on active legislation or we're working this session on active legislation and have been in the past. Um, so I want to start with you three and then we'll bring David back in and just kind of explore what challenges you noticed or faced as you're seeking to craft APR policies that prioritize reuse. So there's been a lot of different approaches taken in different bills, all, you know, generally pointing and in, including reuse and EPR, but this is still a really challenging concept. I know I personally encounter every day folks from all different, you know, walks of life and and sectors who just kind of haven't yet maybe wrapped their minds around this and they think well isn't this a recycling policy why are we talking about reuse so if i wish i had a dollar for every time i heard that so i would love to hear from you three who are kind of tracking and working on live bills or or recently live bills <laughs> um and just kind of what you know maybe one or two of the biggest challenges that you've noticed or faced specific to reuse yeah, I can I can give a start. Um, so many things. I mean, all of these things are a challenge. But um, one of the issues is that I mean, to David's point, in Oregon, the interest in 
adopting a producer responsibility policy was precipitated by a recycling crisis. And we continue to be in a recycling crisis. And there continues to be a great need to increase the recycling of materials. And that's in Washington, we feel that as well. I mean, we <laughs> faced and, and suffered through the same crisis and we continue to be challenged by increasingly unfavorable um, market conditions for recycling that is burdening local governments with increasing costs and increasing challenges for managing packaging um, and paper products in our um, in our communities. And we need a solution to that. We need a solution to that urgently. And that part's not going to go away. And it's a big challenge. It continues to be a big challenge. We have in Washington, more than half of all beverage containers are going to the landfill. That's over 5 billion containers, half of which are going to the landfill every year just in Washington. And we have a relatively good recycling rate for beverage containers compared to most states without a, a deposit return system. So this is a challenge, not just in Washington, but across the country. We do urgently need a solution to get valuable, you know, climate intensive materials recycled um, for environmental benefit in ways that are responsible. And that urgent need is more acutely felt, I think, by local governments and state governments and the public um, because we do already have some familiarity with recycling. We have some infrastructure, some markets that are established for recycling. So understanding how to grapple with and solve our challenges around recycling feels like um, a, just a more immediate and urgent um, task at hand for many folks involved in these conversations. Um, and it is a real challenge, but I think the, the, the big issue has been that it's been set up in this either or way, that it's a zero sum game somehow that like, if you want an EPR program, you have to pick that you're going to do recycling and that if it's going to be successful has to be done sort of at the expense of considering how to also use this massive system transformation process and investment to support that transformation towards reuse. And of course, in Washington here, that's a conversation we've been engaged in. We've been pushing against it because we believe that um, reuse has to be a fundamental part of the policy in order to truly achieve the environmental um, and social goals of and intent of the program, but I think the push-pull and the notion that it's, it's that it's somehow a zero-sum game is one of the biggest challenges that we've faced in our process so far. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely tracks with, I'm sure, a lot of folks in the audience who are in these discussions as well and experiencing this kind of pushback. Will, I want to go to you because, you know, PSI is facilitating dialogues on so many bills across the country, and I'm sure you've got, got some thoughts to add here. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm as um, hands-on as McKenna and Jennifer in their bills, but just kind of like an overview of dialogues I've had with different states. I've heard the saying a lot, which I've never heard before uh, I started working here at PSI, but a lot of people equate it to you're trying to hang too many ornaments on the tree, the tree being EPR, the ornaments being a reuse aspect. Um, kind of repeating what McKenna said is a, like EPR is introduced in a lot of these states because recycling isn't working and they want a better way or a better system to increase recycling rates. Um, and people kind of see it as they should focus on that and maybe there should be another bill introduced or um, later on there should be consideration for reuse. But for right now, it should be purely focused on recycling. Um, another thing that we've seen in our, our PSI seen in dialogues is that a big challenge is um, whether to actually mandate percent or actual percent change reuse targets in, in statute. Um, there are kind of, I mean, there are multiple arguments from multiple different stakeholders on why you should include them, why you shouldn't include them. Um, for one, I mean, like to include them means that there are actual targets that one must hit. And if they're not going to hit, then they have to have an explanation 
uh, as a producer of why they're not going to be able to meet those thresholds. Um, but then from the other aspect is a lot of industry folk believe that they want to see, they want the needs assessment to be done first, to actually see what the reuse landscape looks like in the state, where is there where there is capacity to improve the reuse system and infrastructure. And then based on the results from that need assessment, kind of create uh, the targets from that. Um, from the needs assessment. And we are seeing um, pretty much every bill that I've analyzed this year has had some aspect in their needs assessment of requiring um, the assessment of uh, reuse infrastructure and systems and where there is the most urgent need um, to increase capacity in those systems. So I do think that like people are starting to come around on it, but um, that's just like one challenge is specifically the target side of things of whether to, I think all bills, at least that I've looked at, mandate that there should be reuse targets. It's just whether those are specifically prescribed in statute in terms of a, like percentage or whether those will be made after the needs assessment results come in. So that's for sure a topic that we've been discussing at PSI and with other states. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Will, because I think it just reminded me that like, we often encounter this sort of chicken and egg situation uh, when we start talking about reuse in EPR and other policies where it's like, it's almost like an imagination deficit. We can't imagine what the reuse economy will look like necessarily. And so we don't know how to write a bill to make it happen. Right. And, and yet we're in this moment where we have this tremendous opportunity to fundamentally change the entire waste management paradigm. And so of course we need to be talking about reuse, but it's real hard if you if people can't see the vision, right? And so uh, Jennifer and David, I wanna go to you two and see if you have thoughts on that. Did, like, especially Jennifer with your bill being so focused on reuse in Hawaii, did you encounter that as well? Like were people just kind of like, I can't picture it so I don't support it or were there other challenges that you faced? Definitely a challenge. This the status quo of recycling and that being the solution is in everybody's minds because we've been that's been drilled into us for decades, right? Like you're a good person, you care about the earth, you recycle. <laughs> and so right. the, you know, people just don't have an understanding of what reuse systems are. Aside from beverage container refill systems, I don't think we have any examples we can look to in the world and point to. I think there's also often often hesitancy to be the first to do something. You know, people happy to get on board when they see something's working. And I, I think some of the opposition we actually got within the advocacy community in Hawaii was that our bill really doesn't talk about much recycling much at all. It really puts the emphasis on reduction and reuse in terms of titling of the program. It was kind of buried in the bill, you know, the, the part about what can we not reduce and reuse, then we recycle but people really felt like it needed to be more prominently stated in in the title of the program, and I can I can see where they're coming from. I, I my my vision or my viewpoint is that once you say recycling, that's where everybody's mind goes and thinks about because that's what we know and that's what we are used to. So I want to not be silent on that and really allow for reuse and reduction to be the conversation of what is this and. And so it's a challenge, right? I, I think we all of us probably on this webinar are like deep into reuse, but to the legislature in Hawaii, the zero waste is a new concept to them. Like they don't know what that is. And in the last hearing for our bill this session, you know, there was a lot of conversation and it was really just centered around recycling and Hawaii's isolated location. And, you know, it doesn't make sense for us. And so it it, it just doesn't come out the reuse and reduction part, it's really, it's an education thing. And I think we just need to get some examples of that functioning. And I think if we can swing it in Hawaii, I think we're just in a really good place to model reduction and reuse because we don't have to battle the existing recycling infrastructure. We're really starting from zero. And so if we're starting from zero, let's start at the top of the waste hierarchy and do reduction and reuse first and then recycle. Yeah, agree. Um, we are doing great on time. I'm going to give you the last word, David, uh, because I think mostly no one's ever accused Oregon of being afraid to be the first to do something. And so I would love you to speak more to kind of the approach that you've taken. 
Thanks. And and you also asked about sort of some of the challenges we've seen. Um, yes. I guess two points here. First of all, to the to the point made by the other panelists about this tension between recycling and reuse and how recycling has a tendency to suck all the oxygen out of the room. You know, like we have to master recycling before we can proceed to reuse, which by the way is so ridiculous because we're never going to master recycling. That is an argument that guarantees we're going to do nothing but recycling for the next 50 years and we the, the environment cannot afford that. So we, we kind, I mean, that dynamic was very much in play in Oregon 25 years ago. But we really undermined it by having the state adopt a goal, a statutory goal for waste generation reduction. Not recycling, but generation reduction. And generation is the sum of all materials discarded. The only way you reduce that is through prevention and reuse. And so that really sort of normalized. And then we funded through our solid waste grants program, we repurposed it to fund prevention and reuse projects for 20 years. So it really normalized the conversation around reuse. So by the time we got to our proverbial Christmas tree, well, no one was debating that there might be some sort of like trade-off, like, oh, if we do reuse, we can't do recycling. The community was ready to do reuse because we had normalized it for decades. Um, I don't know if the rest of you can spend several decades normalizing it. We kind of need to accelerate this a little bit faster. Um, the second point I would like to make is a challenge that no one has commented on yet, and I think it's important. And it is to not repeat the mistake that the recycling community has made for the last 30 years of overhyping or overpromoting recycling and treating it like magic fairy dust that will fix all the world's problems. Um, reuse is generally and typically environmentally preferable to recycling, and yet there are still cases in which it does not make environmental sense. And I'll share an example if anyone wants to hear it, but let me just say there are cases in which it doesn't necessarily make environmental sense. And what's missing from all this conversation is tying the policy to the higher order goal. Is the higher order goal to keep waste out of landfills? Or is the higher order goal a circular economy? Or is the higher order goal to reduce environmental impacts to a level that can be maintained in perpetuity? Oregon's policy framework says that last one is our higher order goal and circularity and reuse and landfill diversion, et cetera, are means to an end. And given that recycling and reuse can occasionally backfire and cause unintended consequences, we think it's important to put some sideboards or some benchmarks or some expectations that, yeah, let's fund reuse. Let's make it happen, but let's do it in a way that ensures we're actually accomplishing environmental and societal benefits. Let's just not blindly say, let's reuse everything. I'm not accusing anyone of that, but rather say, here are our higher order objectives social equity, environmental benefit, reuse is a pathway to it. So let's fund or implement or mandate reuse with a check in the process so that before we go out and invest $10 million a year in reuse infrastructure, let's actually make sure we're investing it in the right way, in a way that's beneficial, in a way that doesn't have unintended consequences, or if there are, we mitigate against those. So we're a little bit further out in that we're funded and ready to implement, and we have the leisure of thinking deep thoughts about how to do it right, but policymakers should put in the checks and balances so it's done right from the start. Just more to think about, <laughs> but super important. Um, thank you. And I think we're right on cue to hand the mic over to Matt for some audience Q&A, uh, which I am grateful for because my brain is so full. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, big thanks to the panel. Um, so we've got a question from Sujay Hamanavar. What are these community scale solutions? Could you please elaborate on that? And I'm going to send that over to Jennifer to talk a little bit more about what you guys have been working on in Hawaii. So I guess when when I think of community scale solutions is maybe more locally produced waste, like foodware is a good example. Small businesses, like for right now, right now we've been working on a, a pilot program to use refillable glass containers with a local business and expanding that. Uh, there's people that on the island are collecting cardboard and shredding it to be utilized. We have a person that was collecting compost. We have uh, precious plastics movement. So like there's a lot of this grassroots, like really a lot of concern on Hawaii Island for our landfill capacity issues. We have huge landfill capacity issues on every island. 
we might be sitting in a little bit better place than some islands. And so these are like community programs that most of them sadly are kind of like dwindling and dying because there's just like zero funding for it. You know, and it's not, it's not an economic business that can survive. And so it needs like a county contract, something to, to that effect. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, I I know that um, that with community reuse solutions, I mean, we've seen things like uh, Don't Waste Durham's uh, reusable container system that was set up uh, in, in that community. And, and there's other types of community-based initiatives that could potentially be funded from EPR fees. So moving on to uh, Reed Leafset, uh, nice to see you, Reed, uh, Journal of Industrial Ecology. I think one of the very first EPR papers I read was in, was in your journal, so it's great to have you here. Uh, the environmental benefits of reuse are very sensitive to the number of times it is reused. Do any of the policies or proposed approaches take this into account? And David, I'm going to uh, send this over to you. Thanks, Reed. Our approach does in that we are directing the use of this eight to ten million dollar potential fund, you know, per year, um, and we would aim to direct those funds into reuse programs that can achieve an adequate, you know, the 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 return uh, rate to make the reuse work. And the, I mentioned, you know, and so can't guarantee it will. And sometimes maybe investment is needed to bump that up to get the return rate to the point where it makes environmental sense. But it's a great point that if you have a, a really heavy, high impact, durable item, it's gonna be more impactful to produce that durable item than a single use item. And then you have the impacts of washing the item, which are typically smaller than most people assume, but we've studied that in LCA, many other practitioners have as well. Um, and a lot hinges on the ability to capture that item back and reuse it enough times so that the impact of producing it one time and reusing and washing it eight times is smaller than the impact of producing eight single-use items. Um, this is actually where I think that industry needs a little bit of oversight. Uh, many of you are familiar with the example of Loop um, and the Loop system for reuse. And one of their iconic packages is this beautiful brushed aluminum Haagen-Dazs container and it's like, oh my God, it's aluminum, which is basically solidified electricity. It's one of the most impactful packaging materials around. And it's incredibly heavy. And, you know, I can just sort of do the math in my head that the, the capture rate for that material is going to have to be exceptionally high for the environmental consequences of it to be lower than the consequences of a single-use packet, you know, ice cream package in a in a lightweight paperboard carton. Um, I don't know if it's actually achievable. To, to, to get the return on investment there. So that, that's an example of where if you tell industry, we want reuse, be careful what you're asking for, because you might end up with the marketing department coming up with a, a concept that's beautiful and iconic and checks all the boxes for reuse, except it actually impacts, it, it increases impacts on the environment at the end of the day. Can I just add something in there super quickly? Please. I'm using my moderator privilege. I think that's a really great point, David. And I also think, though, that like somewhere in there, we have our sixth principle, which is allowing flexibility and avoiding barriers to reuse. And where I think this gets really interesting, and I don't have all the answers right now, is like, yes, we need things to reach their break-even point or beyond that and be good for the environment. But how do we also allow the industry time to scale? Because they are not going to come out of the gate with a return rate of 70%, it might take a few years. So I think there's like right. some interesting policy questions there about like how much time we allow for that. A absolutely. Um, you know, we've got a reuse system going on here in Oregon with our bottle bill for reusable bottles. And I'm not sure it's breaking even from an environmental perspective yet, but we're supporting it because it has potential. I think my point with the haagen container was someone could do a screening level analysis and figure out what the break-even point is. And if the break-even point requires a return rate of 90% or higher, I'm not aware of any reuse system anywhere in the world that achieves such a return rate. So to advance a reuse system like that, we would seek some additional evidence that such a return rate is in fact potentially achievable. And if it isn't potentially achievable, then let's move on and advance a reuse model for some other format of packaging. 
So we got a couple. Can I add one more thing? Oh yeah, go ahead, McKenna. That yeah. I I just wanted to make a plug for why a producer responsibility policy framework is so important for advancing reuse in ways that actually deliver environmental benefits. Because I think that that question about having oversight, having data, and having ongoing um, checkpoints with packaging systems and how they're being managed and what environmental um, outcomes are being achieved under them, that is fundamentally, in my mind, what a producer responsibility program for packaging does. It's not about increasing recycling, increasing reuse. It does those things, but it does them very specifically in a framework where there is state oversight and regulation and requirements, and the state is in a position to set outcomes and expectations and then monitor um, the the producers um, you know and the and the system operators implementing them to make sure that they're actually delivering on what they promise they'll deliver and I think that we do risk in the absence of a producer responsibility mm-hmm. framework we do risk having reuse reusable systems go through similar levels of greenwashing that we've seen with recycling. Because if you leave the marketing, uh, you know, department to be in charge of, you know, communicating to customers about reuse as much as recycling, we're going to end up with bad actors and, and false data. And I think, or no data you know, and no evidence as to whether the environmental benefits um, that we believe can be achieved through well done, well designed and implemented systems. We have to have that oversight. We have to have that regulatory framework to be confident that we're heading in a direction that is actually going to achieve the environmental um, outcomes that we need. Really, and McKenna, really- Sorry, I'll be really fast here. Okay, You're yeah, right. EPR provides the framework and the potential to do that. As a regulator, I know if I'm going to hold the PRO accountable to achieving environmental benefits from reuse, I need authority in my statute to hold them to that standard. And so EPR legislation needs to establish that expectation and not just say the expectation is higher reuse rates, period. Because if that's the only expectation, then the only authority I have to go to the PRO is to say, are you achieving higher reuse rates? And they say, yes, we are. I say, is it accomplishing environmental benefits? And they're like, we don't have to tell you that. You don't have any authority here. Go away. So it's really important to get the legislation right and have the higher order objectives in the statute. Thanks. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so we got just about time for maybe one or two more questions. We have a couple questions on on the definitions of reusable packaging, and I think that's a, a good one to dive into here. And so a question from David, what's the definition of reusable packaging? How do we ensure it's actually reused rather than theoretically? Uh, another one from Gary Cohen as a food packaging specialist, EPR advocate. I'm still a little confused over what items would, would consider to be reusable packaging. Items as dairy, meat, other perishables cannot be included as the shelf life requirements and dangers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, Will, you know, let's talk a little bit about the definition of reusable packaging and how much of this has been a, a debate in the states that are looking at it. Yeah, so I think defining reusables can be tricky, and I don't think I have like the be-all, end-all answer on this, but kind of what I've seen in states is like the framework for defining reusables is that it is part of a viable reuse system, Um, and again, like what that necessarily means, I am not 100% certain of, but that is part of a viable reuse system that it's being reused for its original purpose and that it's being reintroduced in the market in the same composition as it was originally introduced into the market. So it's reintroduction it's for the same purpose in the same composition as the original packaging. Um, those set some guidelines But I mean, as we've been talking about, a lot of these reusables, if they're not truly reused, will have a higher environmental footprint than the single use other packaging types. Um, How to actually mandate that or ensure that it is going to be continuously reused, that's that's a lot trickier. Um, It's easier to define what it is than to actually ensure that it's being reused. Um, I don't know if another panelist would have a better 
idea than that, but that's kind of my two cents on it. McKenna? I'd just say, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of work done to develop definitions that actually create some of those safeguards um, or, and, you know, guardrails to ensure that it's not just reusable in theory, but it's reused in practice. Um, I think California's law includes some of the most um, expansive reuse requirements in any of the existing EPR laws. And in my read, I think their definition of reusable is the most comprehensive and I think it provides a really good uh, sort of like guidepost in terms of where to go. I think time will tell how well that definition works in practice, but they get, I mean, if you want to wonk out on how to define reusable, read the California SB 54 definition of reusable. It has like two pathways depending on its retail or refilled by the producer and like six if-thens to define exactly what and how something can be considered reusable. And I think, I think there's a lot of good mind going on in this space, but um, we're going to have to refine it as we go, I think, because this is this is new territory. So I'm going to pass the mic over over to Sydney, but Sydney, I'm actually going to let you have the last word on one interesting question here, oh. which was about producer responsibility organizations. So I know most of our folks on our live stream uh, know, know what a PRO stands for, but for anybody that doesn't, I know we've used that word quite a bit. It's it's the it's the consortium that all of the brands have to pay into to discharge their obligations under the EPR law, um, and so uh, how do we how do we make PROs work for reuse? Oh wow! In one minute. In one minute. <laughs> uh, how do we make PROs work for reuse? Well, I saw some questions um, in the Q and A as I was skimming that were about the makeup of PROs and kind of what who should govern a PRO. I want to echo the panelists that have already said, you know, there needs to be really strong state oversight and enforcement in any EPR system, and that same goes for if you incorporate reuse requirements that the PRO has to meet. Um, but I do think, and I know there is, this might be seen as a controversial statement, but I do think, you know, a PRO needs to, a PRO is made of producers who are obligated under the law to comply. The PRO's job is to help producers comply with the law. Therefore, the PRO is made only of producers. I think it's very important to include lots and lots of ways for additional stakeholders to have input and oversight over the program. Advisory councils are one way. Public comment periods are another way. There was really good language, I thought, in Washington's bill this year about meaningful ongoing community engagement that I think is a great model to look to for any EPR bill. But ultimately, a PRO is about corralling producers toward compliance uh, and, and implementation of an EPR law. That doesn't mean, you know, as we heard from David's example of Oregon's um, grant fund that the state administers, it doesn't mean there's a, there aren't other ways for reuse funding to be kind of overseen and distributed. So I think that's a really innovative way to kind of pull some of the EPR funding and implementation back into the state's jurisdiction to oversee a grant program. Um, it sounds like New York is maybe going a similar way. So I think there are really a lot of different tools that we don't have time to dig too far into, but different ways that we could kind of pull some things out. But I think fundamentally, some of the questions I saw are like, should we trust a PRO? Should a PRO be even allowed? Should it be run by producers? Honestly, I think, yes, a PRO is necessary because it's going to be pandemonium without one. Uh, there are thousands of brands. You have to corral them through something. The state agency, no matter what state it is and how tremendous they are, isn't going to have that kind of capacity. So you need a PRO that's going to help the state be more effective at enforcing the law. Then you also need very strong authority for the state agency to oversee all the actions of the PRO. And you need a multi-stakeholder advisory council that includes community groups and ongoing meaningful community engagement. So I'll stop there. All right. Sydney, are are you wrapping this thing or am I? I know we're at time here. Oh I yes, we are yeah. at time. Good cue. I, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Sure. So I guess we're wrapping. So a uh, big thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you all in the audience as well for tuning into the live stream today. I had a lot of fun. I hope you did as well. 
couple of plugs that I need to mention. Um, as I went over earlier, please check out Upstream's new principles for reuse and refill in EPR and DRS. They're on our website. You can share them with your networks. You can send us thoughts and feedback um, if you'd like at info at upstreamsolutions.org. And I know we have several members from our National Reuse Network and Government Reuse Forum here today. But if you're not a member yet and you want to join either of those groups, please visit the links that I believe are being put into the chat right now. Um, and also just a re recap, a recording will be shared with everyone after the Zoom. So if there's someone from your team or community that you want to share this with, that'll be available in the next few days. Be sure to stay connected on news and upcoming events, um, our next live streams, etc. by visiting upstreamsolutions.org, signing up for the newsletter or following us on social or all of the above. Uh, the Upstream team works really hard on curating valuable resources and information that help support the work you're all doing. So hope you take advantage of those. And with that, I wish you all a happy, healthy March. And thanks again to our panelists. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review. Talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode, as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.